You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is the fourth of the four episodes from the HTA SIG. Today I'm talking with Catherine and Menoir from a colleague about economic models, health economics, and how that all works together with the European HTA. HTA, European HTA, will be important in the future, and I'm pretty sure that will be even important if you work in the US, because lots of the things that are happening are then replicated also in the US nowadays. There's a lot of attention to that. Other countries like Japan look into this as well. There is Canada, Australia, lots of other countries outside of Europe that will have a look into what is going on in the European Union. So stay tuned for another really, really good podcast episode about this important topic. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rate is only £20 for non-high-income countries and only £95 for high-income countries. By the way, if you register for the conference that is happening in June in London this year, you will also get become a member. Or you first become a member and then your membership actually starts immediately, not only after the conference. Price will be then the same. Head over to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. Today I'm talking with Katrin and Menoir. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Great to be here. Thanks so much. So let's start with a short introduction. Menoir, do you want to go first? Hi, I'm Minghua Jian, Director of Statistics from Eli Lili and also a group lead for our HTA team to support oncology portfolio across the globe. I have a PhD by training in epidemiology and statistics and graduate PhD from University of Bristol and have a extensive experience applying statistics to clinical research, epidemiology and health economics and outcome research in academia as well as in the industry setting. And as I mentioned, I currently work for Eli Lilly as the group lead of our Oncology Statistics International Business Unit. So I supervise my team, the patient access medical affair worldwide for our oncology portfolio. And also advance Eli Lilly's internal capability with technical and innovative contribution and trying to build up the best practice for Eli Lilly. I'm also a member of various special interest groups. The PSI is for and views and was a member for the Precision Medicine Oncology SIG at ISPO before becoming the co-chair of the Oncology SIG and also the executive committee for the R Validation Hub project. Cool, very good. 
quite a lot of work. And by the way, it's awesome to work together with Manuel. We work together on the same team. So that's great to have a former colleague here on the show. Let's turn over to Katrin. Yeah, hi, I'm Katrin. I'm working for BMS. I'm a director of statistics and I'm leading the group of statisticians who are responsible for the market access and HUR specific tasks. So we are supporting all the countries in the HTA submissions doing the clinical analysis they need and also all HUR related publications when they are based on patient reported outcomes. Before that, I was leading the statistics group in the German affiliate. So I have a lot of knowledge on the GBA and the German unlock system which really helps me a lot because those are normally the most time challenging and requests we get from the team, from our stakeholders, because they need so many analysis. I have a PhD in data science and I've worked within statistics since 2007, first in a CRO, then in clinical development, then for Beringer Ingelheim in the medical affairs team. And now I'm with BMS since 2014. Yeah, and I'm happy to be here to talk about the European HTA and the implications especially when it comes to economic modeling. That's really, really important and an interesting topic today. Yeah, awesome. And this is the podcast episode number four in this series that the HDA Special Interest Group is working on. So, and if you haven't listened to the other three episodes, then just scroll back in your podcast player and listen to them. We'll all mark them so that it's very easy to see. And just a short blurb. If you don't know what the HTA SIG is doing, then head over to the PSI homepage where you will find an overview of all the special interest groups, there are also SIGs, and there's also the overview for the HTA SIG. And if you want to join, there's the information how to join. Very good. So let's talk into the, go into economic models and European HTA. So in terms of economic models, first maybe... What actually is that? I think the purpose of the health economic modeling is to evaluate and support decision makers in allocate their limited healthcare budget resources to achieve the best possible outcome for patients. And so deciding to invest one in one health intervention means you have to not investing in another. So decision maker will be willing to invest in a health intervention only if the its value exceeds that of the alternative one. So in this case, something called cost-effectiveness model will draw out information from various resources to help analysis which intervention represent the best value for the decision making. And then there's a various a type of those economic model evaluation and the type of the evaluation differ in how they account for the cost and benefit of intervention and what type of the model is the most appropriate depends on the complexity of capturing the impact of the intervention. And also depends on, for example, the availability of the data and the requirement in decision making. And mostly you will see them with being informed by large amount of data processing into the model. So that will include maybe the cost, efficacy, safety, and quality of life. And so for that, I think the most well-known we know is from nine submissions that request for the, those economic evaluation. And you could see those modeling well, mostly in 
developed in the Microsoft Excel, but you can also see them in some other platforms such as R. And in terms of how they evaluate, it's really to look at the proportion, at least in oncology, to look at the proportion of patient goes through different health states, and then you modeling them by assigning the, the utility and the cost through time of the proportion of patient goes through those health states. And it might come up with something called summarizing them in a statistical ISA, which stands for the incremental cost effectiveness ratio. And it's summarizing all those costs and then the benefit from the treatment and then inform the payer to see how much it might cost them to have a patient to have a quality of life, good quality of life for a year. And so this is kind of in a nutshell of what is the economic model. So that was quite a lot. Let's depict it a little bit. The first thing is, as a country, you have only a certain pool of money you can put into health. So it might go a little bit up and down, but overall, it's more or less fixed. So as a government decision maker, you want to get the best health for this money that you invest. And now whenever there's a new intervention coming up, you want to see, does it make sense to invest in this? And will that overall give me basically more health for, for the money? And now you, there's kind of other treatments out there. there. Usually you compare against these other treatments. And these now the way you want to compare it is, of course, the problem is every disease is different. There is, you have oncology, you have diabetes, you have dermatology, you have all kinds of different things. And if you want to compare across all of these different diseases and therapeutic areas, you need to have some kind of common standard. And one is the symptoms are so different. And so what is usually used is some kind of utility. And here is the EQ5D is really used mostly to assess the health of the patients. Which costs are all taken into account? Is it just the cost of the treatment? It's more than the cost of treatment. It could be the cost of, let's say, if a patient have an adverse event, need to be hospitalization, and those will be part of the cost that will be incurred into the model as well. And it could be other things, depends on what type of disease, and hence the cost can be related to what might incur when the patient, not just having the treatment, but things happen together as well. So all these other costs mingled into the overall model. And depending on the disease, yeah, sometimes you know the treatment cost is really all what matters. In some other instance, maybe hospitalizations, surgery, other kind of things can be much higher cost drivers. The probability of these all these kind of built into models. So you mentioned Excel is used. Now, that is, when I first saw that, I thought, really? We used Excel for these kind of things? Why is that the case? I think it seems to be commonly provided when people wanting to build an economic model. And when I heard about the reason why we use Excel is that maybe for payer, it might be an easier interface for them to look through what's being implemented in the model. Then if you are using, let's say, other like platform, could be basically if you have a wind bug. And also there's a computer power issue as well. 
Katrin, when I think about such a model in Excel, how does it look like from a kind of look and feel? Can you give a description for the listener how that looks like? So if you think of, for example, again, for an oncology example, so you have your different health states. So for example, if you think of an adjuvant trial, you have the patients who are really free of disease. So you have one column in your Excel is for the patients who are free of disease and you use the utilities and the data from your trial in this column. Then you have a second column for those who have a recurrence or progress. And then you have those who die, who really have no quality of life at all. So the utility is zero for them. And then you have the three different columns and you have transition probabilities for the different time points. How, what is the probability that a patient changes its health state? And this is how this is done. So I'm not doing that myself, I have to say. So we are really responsible for giving the analysis that, that are needed for the modeling. But that is how the colleagues told me that it looks like. And I also had the same feeling. So using Excel sounds a bit weird for a statistician, but it's because payers are used to that too. And also if you have an Excel, you have basically the tool and the data in one place. So people can put alternative costs into it and basically play with it. If you do want to adjust models for different countries, you can put country-specific costs into this and stuff like this. Yeah, and this is how it's done also in most of the companies. So you have one global model you start with, and then once you have the CHMP opinion, you adapt it to the different countries, and then you can do that easily in Excel to include the different country utilities for the healthy people and the different costs of the different healthcare systems. So it's very convenient for that. Yeah, very good. Now, you just mentioned we as statisticians work really on some of the analysis that go into these models. And the overall kind of framework for that is based on an acronym called PICO. So what's PICO? And how does it fit into this economic model? So maybe I can take that. So PICO is an abbreviation. So the P is for population. So the population of interest. So different HTA bodies might want to have a look at different populations. Most of the times it's dependent on the label, but also depending on the standard of care in that country. Then the I is the intervention. So the drug you want to compare versus your comparator. Then you have the comparator. This is the C. And this is normally based on the standard of care. It's defined by the HTA bodies. It's based on guidelines. It's, of course, based on regulatory approval and also what's affordable in the country. And then you have the outcome. So your variable of interest and so what you want to see. So, for example, you want to know the quality of life of the patients at week 52 in a trial or the overall survival in an oncology trial. So this is the outcome. Yeah, and also the PHOG framework has been well developed and be accepted by the Cochrane, and so it's increased the credibility if follow the framework well, and so that you could summarize the kind of the relative efficacy across treatment via these systematic literature review, which use this framework to look at the literature review search strategy and to ensure that more comprehensive and less of the bias in terms of the search or and the focus of different of the study that should be included so we were more well defined yeah this is also to say evidence-based medicine 101 if you want to learn more about this yeah for sure check out the Cochrane homepage 
Cochrane, the Cochrane organization is the mother of evidence-based medicine and evidence-based decision-making in medicine. And the Cochrane handbook is quite fundamental for many of these HDA guidances. There's surely a lot of overlap between that and, for example, the NICE work. Also in terms of people that also these different things, there's a lot of overlap. So it's maybe another topic. And Noir mentioned she, she is coming from the University of Bristol. That's for sure also one of the universities that is very heavily involved. When I hear population, intervention, comparator, outcome, I think that sounds a little bit like what we nowadays call estimant. So how does estimant and PICO go together? Yeah, so the PICO and the estimant are, of course, directly related. So the population definition is given in both concepts and the outcome of interest describes a variable to be analyzed in the estimate concept as well as also the analysis strategy. It's different in the estimate framework is the, um, that the estimate framework highlights the importance of the intercurrent events. That's not given in the PICO, so it ensures that the summary measures are used which are used to compare the treatments, conditions are made really explicit. So the PICO is less explicit. And this is really an issue because the estimate defined in the trials do not necessarily match the estimates needed for HTA. So for example, when you think of the German system, which I know very well, and especially of oncology, the German GBA always wants to see the treatment policy estimate. They are asking for that for all of the endpoints, also for quality of life and safety. And The clinical trials are normally set up that you can analyze a viral treatment estimate only because the data is collected on treatment. This is what you want to see. You want to know what happens while the patient is on the investigational drug. So this is not harmonized at all. And this will be one of the challenges also for the European assessment. How do the estimates and the PICO for that dossier then match and how can that be solved? Yeah. So what is your guidance then? Should the kind of... Does it PICO basically needs to be more clearly defined so that all the other estimate parts are in it already defined in the systematic literature review so that when you see an outcome, oh, that is on treatment or that is treatment policy and what kind of intercurrent events were taken into account and all these kind of different things. So I think that would make the life for the statistician running the analysis. And especially when you think of indirect comparisons, where you have to rely on published data would make our life much more easy if you would really know, okay, what was analyzed exactly, how have been intercurrent events treated, because this is sometimes not so clear. And I think also for statisticians, so working on clinical trials, having an understanding of the different concepts of estimates needed for the different parts of the drug development in the clinical trial and later in HTA would also help to be better prepared for those analysis and to better understand those concepts. Yeah, but I really would recommend that this would be more precise also within the HTA scope. I think for HTA, because typically it's evaluate the effectiveness of a policy rather than a treatment, as we all know. So it's really nearly impossible to replicate feasible policies for multiple payer, right? Just by using, I think oncology tend to have just one pivotal clinical trial to support each indication. And also, I think, for example, the stand-up care would like to be different across country, partly due to their availability and also related to their previous submission as well. And also 
the treatment involvement is also contribute to this complexity as well. So, for example, by the time when the study is for data log and look at the result, the timing of having that comparator might be changed compared to when the trial has been designed at the time. And, and there's also other issues as well as, for example, the precision medicine era now we are facing. So you would use the biomarker and other tests to select the treatment that are most likely to help the patient, right? But with this evolving landscape, we likely to face situation that we might need to compare the treatment of the differences in population as well as the study design across different treatment. So yeah, so all those in so much complexity when you're trying to summarizing the relative efficacy across treatment and compare that to fit to economic model and suitable for each country to address their peers scoping requirement is just very complex. Yeah, we are already going into the topics of the network meta-analysis and indirect comparisons, because this is really what feeds into the economic model. If you want to say you have the risks, you have the transition probabilities, all these kind of different things. But of course, you need to also have the treatment effects. And in order to get treatment effects across many different compounds, more or less the only way to do that is by doing network meta-analysis and indirect comparisons. And as you just mentioned, there's so many problems that come with it. There's the population, there's pretty much everything that is in the estimate statement, right? And that makes it very often very demanding. But at least you need to be transparent about it. You need to kind of check for the different assumptions. You need to do sensitivity analysis across that. Exactly. And knowledge about the estimate framework then used for the different trials would help to be able to do that assessment. And uh, of course, Minwa said it will not be possible to have the estimate, the HDA bodies want to see in each and every trial, but at least to having the knowledge, what are you comparing with, would really help. But we also address those like kind of the certainty of the evidence, right? Different definition across trial, different population, all those all need to be considered and documented and be transparent for sure. Yeah. So just from these kind of comments, you can probably get an understanding of that is everything but a straightforward analysis <laughs> where you, oh, you have this data set, you run an NMA over, your job is done. Not really. <laughs> That's true. And it will be much more complicated having now the European HTA in mind and the try there to really fulfill all the different countries' needs, the different payers' needs within one dossier, having a bunch of PICOs, a bunch of different network meta-analysis being available then also to everybody. And those have to be fitted into the economic models afterwards. Somehow you might have deviating results, slightly different subgroup definitions, subpopulations. So there's a lot of challenges there to come. And that's, that will be a really interesting how that evolves and how that will be fitted together also with respect to the timelines we have there. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine if you already have lots of sensitivity analysis on the NMA and then that goes into the model, the cost effectiveness model that adds further complexity, you kind of very easily end up with a lot of factors to consider. And to that, I think as a statistician, we it's, it's probably not uncommon that we will face this kind of challenge and then 
when the trial has been done, it has been published. So there's nothing else you can do in terms of what you can get from those reported outcome from the publication, right? So as a statistician, sometimes we're trying to think out of box and trying to address those shortcomings when you're trying to do an NMA by taking some innovative approaches. Like I can give an example that Lily has done this submission for the second line lung, small cell lung cancer. And so for that indication, because it's for the older non-smotional lung cancer patients, so it's a broader indication. But during the scoping, the comparator being assigned, for example, the Nintendo plus the Taxo, these are for non-square mesh. And then you have other comparator assigned to you saying it's a Natanab that is EGFR positive and so on. And also like other immuno-oncology, which has using the PDR one expression. So all those different biomarkers just make it not possible to summarize all your network of all the study because they're different population. And but then you could one could say, oh, you can just go into the subpopulation doing that comparison. However, then you would come to risk that you might not be able to address all the comparators that are assigned to you by the payer. And so we have taken some approaches by hybrid the methodologies to address this issue. So this innovative approach is to hybrid two method. So it's a network meta-analysis of approach with the fractional polynomial and also have a hierarchical exchangeable model. So that means that you are able to perform to allow different interaction between the treatment and the population that address this issue. And also, I think at the time, this is not in the guidance. And of course, we've been asked by the nice ERG team, many questions, and you have a back and forth to address why we think this is an appropriate approach and to capture the right treatment efficacy relatively compared our compound with other comparator. And so cut the story short, the end is that NICE has accepted these approaches and then also has grown us the end-of-life criteria. And we have this approach published in BMC Cancer 2019. And now we have seen a webinar last year that Yaji and NICE mentioned about potential of that approaches to be in their future guideline as well. So I think that what I'm trying to say is that the innovation could also come in to address some of those shortcomings. But of course, it's not, it's not penicillin that can address for all the issues. Yeah, that's a really, really nice story. And it shows that by having a statistician that is able to understand, see the problems, come up with an innovative solution, you can overcome really good hurdles. And I'm pretty sure you stumbled over, oh, that's, we have never done it that way. But if you have really kind of good relationships, good standing in your company, then you can go with these kind of innovative solutions and really make a difference to the company, but even more to the patients. So that's a really, really nice story. There's one thing that is, if you are coming from the clinical trial field, that's always really important is pre-specification. Now, what role does pre-specification place in this process? So maybe I can start with the answer on that. If you look at the current guidelines, pre-specification really plays a huge role in there. 
So the current guidelines UNETA is currently establishing for the analysis for the joint clinical assessment, it's really written down there that those which are pre-specified have the highest statistical rigor are the most certainty with respect to outcome and all others which are not pre-specified should be clearly labeled as post-hoc, as uncertain, as less validity. However, there's an ongoing discussion on what does pre-specification mean. So pre-specification can mean a lot of things. So of course you have your SAP for the trial and you have pre-specified what needs to be done for the regulatory approval and for the CSR. But you also have the guidelines in which the analysis to be performed are pre-specified. You have the rules of procedures of the HTA bodies. You might have a different document for the HTA pre-specifying analysis. And you also have best practice from other submissions. So there's, there's an ongoing discussion on what does pre-specification mean. And I think we as statisticians have to be a bit careful with those wordings pre-specified and post-talk because it has much more different colors, but also when it comes to statistical rigor, how valid is a result or not. So that's a very good question. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> Actually, when I when you scroll back in this podcast player, probably by something like three years, you'll find an episode that is called something like uh, 50 Shades of Pre-Specification <laughs> because there's everything in it. And also, how detailed is it? Is it just a subgroup that is specified? Is it a subgroup plus the endpoint? Is it a subgroup plus endpoint and population? And exactly how the analysis will be done and all these other things. Yeah, and I think it's really important that you as a statistician really know about those different shades of pre-specification. And what we really have to do is really avoid data dredging, avoid cherry picking, avoid data-driven analysis. However, as an HTA statistician, you have to be a bit more pragmatic when it comes to pre-specified analysis, yes or no, because it's not met only the multiplicity and testing hierarchy in the trial. When sometimes you pre-specify, let's say, an analysis flow, you define, okay, what do I do if I get this result and pre-specify this instead of really the, the exact method? But we have to be really careful to not take data-driven decisions. And I think that's really an important role of a statistician to find that balance between pragmatism and statistical rigor in the HTA field. Also, to Alessandra, you mentioned about this pre-specification could be referring to outcome, could be referring to subgroup or any other element. And I think we all know that patient access to treatment is as important as just re as to receive a positive licensing approval. So I think it's also important at the process of kind of more trial design or even Earlier than that, you have a strategy framing statistician from the HTA should have also some voice there to bring in the need from the HTA, different payer, but also what are the other elements, like what are the right instruments, what can be accepted by this payer, but not accepted by other payer, and you need to really balance out of the pro and cons and before you go ahead with the final study design. So I think that's also important for the HTA statistician to really have early involvement during the process. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the big things I learned in my career. It's like always, if you put the statistician to not early enough on the project, there's not a lot you can <laughs> rescue. And the 
you may have a statistician on it, but statistician that is mostly experienced in the regulatory frame and knows about FDA and EMA and MHRA and these kind of things. But they may not be aware about all the problems, the challenges that come with HDA. So things that you need to have in your study to be able to have, to even make indirect comparisons. I've seen that where, oh, we want to use this new endpoint in our studies. And then, hmm, bad idea, because now you can't do any indirect comparisons anymore. And have something really nice and innovative in, in it, but you can't demonstrate how you're really better than the others because you're the only one who use that endpoint. So see, having these kind of discussions early on in terms of the design of your phase three studies is absolutely vital. And when it comes to oncology, probably even phase two studies, because <laughs> if you're lucky, these are the ones that go forward into the into the HDA dossiers. That's true. And sometimes it's single arm trials. And then you have to be <laughs> much more innovative and Oh, the evidence gap there, right? Yeah, do propensity score methods or different things. Use real world evidence to do the comparison. So it's getting complicated and complicated then, yeah. But it's true, and that's really something I would recommend for statisticians. So also being curious to learn about that, well-connected, also cross-functional. So not only the development statistician and the HDA statistician, but also with the commercial colleagues, with the market access colleagues, to better understand the background and to be able to take the right decisions. Yeah, there's usually someone also uh, that is assigned from a market access perspective to the to these compounds early in the process, and that can help at least get input from the major markets. You'll never be able to get input from every small country, but if you can at least get from Germany, England, Canada, to yes, what they want to see, that would be really, really helpful. Thanks so much. That was an outstanding discussion about economic models, the European HDA process, and it gives you a little bit of an insight into what you see HDA Special Interest Group is doing. And there's a lot of work going on currently around European HDA process, the kind of harmonization of these. That will be a very hot topic for a couple of years, I'm pretty sure. And due to the Brexit, there's kind of a the nicest little bit, and the English side is a little bit outside of it. So there's a lot of kind of co-development. Co and then there's other countries yeah, like Japan, US, Canada, South Korea, Australia. All of them have sense similar kind of processes. So it's not just about the EU. Katrin, Minois, if you want to give one kind of key takeaway for the listener, what that be? Who wants to go first? Yeah, maybe I'll go first. And so really my key takeaway is really be curious. Look right and left, not only focus on your daily business, but really have a look at the whole development chain of the drug, understand what's behind so that you can take the right decisions and also be involved in the discussions, which are so important. I think the recommendation from me would be as a study decision, we always very important for us to have a broader picture rather than just looking at the data, analyzing it. Because I think for the HTA, the elements is broader than just analyzing the data, get approval in terms of licensing. It involves with other elements. And so that be 
open-minded, be connect with your other business partner and knowing the concept in a broader sense. And that would help the statistician to also provide the very relevant and also to address the relevant questions from the payer. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, again, check out the HTA Special Interest Group homepage on psiweb.org. The show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS who helped with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. Oh,